Hello and welcome to Building Tomorrow's Insurer. My name is Nigel Fellowstream and I am the founder and CEO of Canopy. And today we are super excited to be kind of kicking off a very limited series, uh, one that is very topical and uh, it's one of the, one of the most uh, emerging technologies uh, in the insurance sector today. Uh, and as with that is Gen AI and large language models. If it hasn't come up in a conversation each week over the last uh, 52 weeks, I will be surprised. Uh, and over the next kind of few episodes, we're going to be diving pretty deep in diving pretty deep into Gen AI, LLMs. How can it kind of disrupt the insurance value chain? Uh, and kind of fundamentally, how is it going to change delivering insurance? And I could not be more excited to, today to be joined by uh, Dr. Kelly Nuttall. She uh, is a vin visionary leading the charge over at Deloitte, kind of leading their AI and digital transformation practice. Um, she has a, a big uh, history in this space um, with like this focus of transforming data into insights. Uh, and she really kind of takes the, I guess, champions integration of AI and these technologies into business, uh, into business government, um, analytics improvement throughout the corporate sector. So thank you, Kelly. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. No, no problem at all. I couldn't be more excited to talk about all things AI with you. Yeah, like your your day job. So uh, I'm sure yep. you're, uh, yeah, lots and lots to share. Uh, and so I'd love to kind of maybe just frame up the conversation of maybe your journey in da data uh, and then obviously into AI and kind of how it's kind of led you to the role that you've got into this leadership role at Deloitte. Yeah, no worries. Um, funnily enough, my, my parents didn't really have high hopes for me in going to uni or doing much with my life. I think they wanted me to be a hairdresser at one point and uh, nothing wrong with hairdressing, but... I went to uni and I actually studied psychology. Um, so my PhD is actually in consumer psychology, which people often think it's in computer science and it's absolutely not. Um, but there's a lot of stats in psychology. And so I got really good at stats. And then when I went out into the real world post PhD, after lecturing stats at uni, I went into market research, which was all about, you know, customer survey data and focus groups and research. and then the world of big data started to emerge and not just asking customers what they thought, but actually looking at what they did. And, and that took me into more um, client side facing kind of um, roles where I set up centers of excellence for analytics. Uh, analytics moved into AI, machine learning. Uh, that then took me to Deloitte and uh, I've been there for over 10 years now where I've been really helping other organizations go on a journey from, I guess, getting their data right to getting value out of it. Uh, in the AI space, but really focused around having the right strategy and delivering value as opposed to just doing it for, you know, the sake of AI. Yeah. On that, and just to go a little deeper on there, in terms of you obviously on the coalface with um, client side, uh, hearing kind of what everyone's saying really on a day-to-day -day basis and being at, the, I suppose, Deloitte over the last decade, I'm sure you've seen this kind of um, change in evolve, like this evolution of the C-suite of how they talk about kind of big data right? and then how that's kind of transformed to where we are today. Can you give us a little like peek under the hood of like how you've seen that kind of that 10-year transition? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it's been such a fascinating time to do what I do and just see it at this inflection point where Gen AI launched and you know, the first thing we started noticing when ChatGPT came out was when we were doing education sessions with executives, they'd stop talking about AI as Terminator and start talking about it more as, as ChatGPT. And I thought, well, something is definitely changing here. <laughs> so I love that it's captured the, the hearts and minds of executives. Um, mm -hmm. You know, up until 
two years ago, you know, AI was definitely present in parts of business, but it was definitely not, I would say, on the C-suite agenda. Um, it was normally, you know, you, you might have one visionary sitting around the executive table that could see where things were going and were excited about it. But, you know, now it's every single executive wanting to talk about it. Probably never had um, more time in more boardrooms than I have in the last 12 months trying to explain the opportunity and how to think about it strategically. So, you know, I think it's a good thing, but at the same time, uh, you worry that that's the perception is that it is just chat GPT and there's so much more to AI. So, you know, we're excited that it's created, I guess, the interest in AI technologies more broadly and then starting to think not just generative AI, but traditional types of predictive AI and analytical AI as well. And just kind of following on from there in terms of, I suppose, adoption uh, in terms of um, in the corporate space, but maybe specifically in, in, within the insurance sector, if you're working with any of those folks, kind of interested in how you've seen um, different sectors adopt um, these technologies, whether there's kind of laggards and leaders here um, and maybe uh, of the laggards, um, potentially that is that in, could be the insurance industry. And if so, kind of why? Like what are those kind of, or the reason that those folks aren't maybe adopting as fast? Yeah, look, I, I don't think any industry particularly stands out as being ahead of any other one. And and when I talk about AI transformation and adoption, I'm not just talking about doing one or two use cases. I'm talking about how an organisation starts to execute on, I guess, a scaling strategy to make AI critical capability across its business. No one's really doing that well at this stage. I would say the last year has been largely for most organisations, particularly around experimentation with Gen AI technologies, um, really giving them low risk tasks. Like we've definitely seen this in, in the FSI and insurance sector around, you know, understanding the capabilities of it to synthesise documents that are public. Mm -hmm. So they're not really high risk documents. They're all publicly mm -hmm. available documents, understanding how they perform from a productivity perspective versus, uh, you know, a human trying to understand where the risks are. So it's really around, you know, testing the limitations and, and the productivity benefits of some of these technologies. Um, you know, I'd say in terms of traditional predictive AI, we, we see, you know, financial services and insurance has always been pretty mature in that space in terms of customer and analytics, um, risk prediction. Um, these are all pretty well, you know, trodden paths for use case delivery. Uh, it's, it's, I think there's still quite a hesitation in Australia at the moment that I'm seeing play out with any sort of customer-facing organisation to start mm -hmm. to go customer-facing. They're looking more at back-office productivity benefits. Mm -hmm. The real shame would be, though, I think, you know, Gen AI is an amazing, and, and AI more broadly is, is great at helping us do what we do today more efficiently, more effectively, more innovatively, differentiate ourselves more. But we should also be thinking about what new things that weren't possible before. So, you know, very, uh, you know, out there use case. But what if I, as an insurer, decided to build a new AI algorithm as an intermediary that my whole job was just to look at all the, like, the different insurance options and the customer just comes to that intermediary, which is an AI, to get the best deal that has a coverage? You know, that that's a different business model to what exists today. And that's, well, I guess you've got, you know, you, you compare the platforms, and I'm not deep in insurance, as you know, but um, if you're starting to think about AI as a broker or an intermediary, like that's a really interesting proposition that hasn't been possible before because no AI could do that. Mm. So thinking about new things, new innovation, new growth opportunities, as well as just your productivity benefits. Yeah, I think uh, we've seen 
I guess as you just kind of called out, like being caught into a bunch of uh, boardrooms a lot of the time. Like I think we've seen the result of that, which is uh, um, the quarterly reports all kind of putting kind of Gen AI strategies out there in terms of we're not falling behind, we're putting kind of our strategies in front. And then kind of you reflect exactly what we've seen, which is kind of process improvement and efficiency of like yeah. how can we get two or three X more efficient versus what's the kind of 10X change that transforms the business. I think there's like this delta at the moment where it feels like we're in a, like a still in a discovery phase of kind of little risk aversion. How can we kind of feed at the edges to kind of test, test like wet our toes without kind of exposing ourselves to a bunch of risk? Correct. And, and, and that's sensible. And I mean, the technology, I think, if you even think back to image generation tools a year ago, they would produce an image that you had an eye on the back of your head and a third arm. Um, you know, a year later, they're photorealistic, right? So mm. we need to understand that the technology may not be there yet to do some of these really groundbreaking competitive advantage focused use cases, but it will get there really quickly. Yep. I, I guess it kind of reminds us very much of kind of neural networks and when you're thinking about a baby uh, and as a baby grows you kind of got a six month year old baby who's taking a bunch of information in whether that's images words kind of all the things it's kind of growing the neural network and it's kind of like kind of where we are at the moment right which is like kind of the first year of life of these kind of gen ai models these transformers etc and they're going to they're going to take some time to develop they're going to get some take some time to get better um and those kind of use cases that are those um, kind of factor use cases are going to take a bit of time to to get there to be uh, kind of product maybe kind of production ready, but I guess that's kind of where um, uh, I think kind of maybe the the enormous upside on the application side is. Well, and we're going to learn how to interact with them better as well over time. We're going to learn. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like if you when you first started prompting with the GPT models and you know the large language models, you treat them more like a Google search tool. But as you start to get more experience with them, you're starting to go, now imagine I am this and I want you to think about these things and give me advice on this. It's not just give me the answer, it's help me understand the thinking. Like we, I think, you know, I, I, I interact with a lot of organizations that are like, I've tried it and I didn't like it. And it's like, as you start to teach them how to get better value out of it. So I think it's both ways, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And in, an extension from um, that in terms of you just mentioned around the back office and in terms of teaching people how to get better with it. And we've seen uh, in the conversations that we've had, customer support, contract analysis, drafting, those kind of core administration, yeah. administrative tasks in the back end are kind of where people are focusing. Is there any sort of start to leaning towards like sustainable competitive edges at the moment? Um, because they don't seem to me like they're big like sustainable moats that we that these folks can build in those particular use cases like are you starting to see any kind of competitive edges in in any folks no not really at this point in time i mm -hmm. think like i said no. like if i'm going to be 100 percent realistic most people at the moment yeah. are still either experimenting or starting right. to think around now i think we're starting to see you know c-suite go okay i get it now where's the value how does the business mm -hmm. case stack up to actually go on this transformation yep. And the reality is, unless you've got a high risk appetite and you want to go straight for competitive advantage, a lot of the time your productivity um, benefits will be what justifies the investment in the innovation, right? Because you're going to take cost out there and you're going to invest it into new sources of growth. And so I think it's um, productivity is also the safe option right now. I mean, there's, there's, 
if we look at, you know, the education sector, what the Khan Academy, for example, have done with Khan Migo is a really good example yep. um, of offering something that was never possible before, one-on-one -on -one tutoring at scale to the population. Um, you know, the research showed that two standard deviations outcome improvement by using personalised tutoring, tutoring over a one to 30 student ratio could never scale it. Now with AI, we can have a personalised tutor. That's mm. new. That's innovative. That's probably the, the, mm. the thing I've seen probably the, the closest to the game changing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. And, and as part of that, uh, I guess data purity and data in is a, is a thing. Like, and that's not just in um, the large language models, but that's in, I guess, the more traditional kind of models as well. Um, so, have you kind of, have you seen kind of what are you seeing there in terms of, I guess, selection of data sources, um, that's maybe specifically within insurance or kind of other sectors you work in, in terms of data source selection, kind of how uh, folks are thinking about training this model, how you think people should be thinking about data purity when they're kind of looking at uh, their kind of um, their AI strategy. So it's rubbish in, rubbish out, right? A model is fed mm. by data. So if your data is not great, mm. your model's not going to be highly predictive. Also, if the thing that you're mm. trying to predict is diverse in nature, like everyone draws a circle, being able to predict a circle is pretty easy. Everyone draws a giraffe in a completely different way. You need more mm. data to predict that accurately, right? So I think yep. that's a consideration. The second thing is um, in insurance and, and other like sectors, I think, you know, thinking more not just about the data that's in your organisation, but in the broader ecosystem, that's going to be important. Um, I've worked with clients that were, you know, looking at predicting financial sustainability of customers and they were looking at their own models in their own organisation and they could get it to a level of predictive accuracy, but it wasn't that high. Start to bring in some, you know, credit risk data and some other sources of information outside of their organisation, suddenly you get a very accurate model. So I think it's not just about having good data, it's also looking at data outside your organisation. And I think, you know, ecosystems are going to become increasingly important when it comes to AI, um, not just in the data, but also... You know, are you going to build all these models yourself? Are you going to partner? Are you going to um, build on top of large language model providers or do you want to build mm. your own? And, you know, yeah. research I've seen is showing that a lot of people who wanted to go down the path of building their own large language models, the majority have already abandoned them. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's an expensive game uh, and uh, scale is important. And so the folks with the most money who can kind of get the most compute kind of get there. And so um, I yes. think... Uh, and Will you does, ever does spend sense? as much money as Microsoft <laughs> on your AI? That's the question. Ex yeah. That is the question on building a base model. Um, and I guess that's what we've seen this kind of really big rise of these open source models, right? These kind of, uh, and them being it kind of looking at uh, like all the, the factors in terms of like how kind of uh, good are these models, I guess, kind of when you're comparing open and closed models, like the, the open folks are closing the gap pretty fast. Uh, and so I think... Um, that, uh, and that, I think that kind of leads us really nicely into this kind of, you mentioned about kind of ecosystem, you mentioned about data being important. Um, and I think that's kind of something we see definitely in the insurance sector a lot is security uh, and mm -hmm. kind of where does the data sit? Kind of how do you bring it in? Where does the learning sit? Um, those kinds of things, are like uh, 
kind of what we've seen and kind of the work that we're doing is kind of how can we make sure that we kind of bring the data in and it sits on the carrier's own infrastructure and so it kind of solves the problem of kind of kind of uh, data leaving uh, their own ecosystem. Are you kind of seeing and having any of those conversations around, I know you're not probably not deep in security, but just on a more like holistically organizational no. level around how they're thinking about security? Look, obviously, data sovereignty and all of that is at top of mind for people right now. And having, yep. you know, um, data onshore and things like that is is very much a consideration of vendor choices mm -hmm. at this point in time. And that landscape mm -hmm. will continue to rapidly evolve. So I think stay tuned for what that is. But um, but yeah, absolutely, data security is something that you deal with, whether it's business intelligence, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's you know mm -hmm. typical analytics, whether it's just like. Mm -hmm repositories of information. Um, these risks are not new. They're just, I would say, the scale and speed of which we're dealing with them in the AI space is just the difference. The, the risks that we're actually solving for are the same risks we've always solved for with data. Yeah, interesting. I want to just, I want to switch um, gears a little bit if we can, and I want to kind of uh, stay within kind of AI, general and LLMs, but kind of more pivot towards the organization and mm -hmm. um, the organizational structure. Um, and I know you do a bunch of work here which is kind of the transition towards you mentioned a little bit earlier on like an ai driven organization and yep. kind of what changes you need in people what changes you need in process what paper, um, what changes you need in culture uh to be able to kind of instill these um yeah to, to make it an ai driven organization can you maybe touch on that kind of how leadership is important potentially and kind of how you can get these kind of companies up that um adoption curve yeah, gosh, I could talk at this for another hour in its own right. I think that's probably the challenge at the moment in our landscape is um, there's a lot of focus on experimentation, as I said, and jumping in and, and delivering use case. In fact, I almost think we've gotten just so obsessed with use cases that we've actually forgotten about all the other components of AI, like people process technology choices, all of these things that sit around it that um, are going to make it successful and sustainable and scalable. And so, you know, I'll get to leadership because I actually think leadership is by far the most important attribute to be thinking about and element in your strategy you should be thinking about. Um, but I guess starting with being really clear around what is your actual business strategy and how is AI a new capability that you've got at your disposal or your competitors have to unlock their strategy or your strategy, right? So you should be thinking about it just like you would any other core capability. How will it help you achieve your strategic objectives? So that's the first and foremost thing to think about. Then it's like, what is your ambition? Are you wanting to be a fast follower or do you wanna be a pioneer? Do you wanna focus on back office productivity or do you wanna be disruptive and game changing and innovation focused and growth oriented? Um, so some of those choices will actually set the tone for your strategy. Do you want to switch on AI and existing vendor investments you've made, or do you want to build something bespoke and new? And so, you know, I'd be saying, look, focus on productivity and existing vendors. You know, that's table stakes. Think about your game changing, what you can do that's unique. So all of these things are, you, there's a set of strategic choices you should be thinking through before you even start doing anything. Then it's about um, thinking about what is the right operating model to, to deliver this AI that you're going to do. And I think there is just, Almost, you know, I've been working in AI strategy and implementation for over a decade, and it is almost the thing that people always forget about is what is the right operating model. They start doing it and they get a few years into the journey and go, actually, are we organized for success by doing it this way? Um, 
So really like where we see a lot of value at the moment is if you're an organization that has either started, how do you actually set up sort of, I guess, an accelerator that you can start to put governance around and, and put investment into, into core value aligned areas, experiment, scale, productionize, you know, maybe extend to another customer who's got a similar use case. How do you start to do that with all the risk and governance around it, linked to value management frameworks, linked to benefit realization? Um, that's kind of like where we see a lot of the value, but that if you're gonna take a central model, but you also want it out in the business, how does that team then provide governance that they're all sort of doing it in the same way and you're able to tell the benefit story at the enterprise level because you need that story to keep getting investment. It's not like a traditional platform, like putting in an SAP or an Oracle where it's, you know what you're doing. It's, you know, um, this is new technology. It needs to be demonstrated. It needs to be iterative. You know, execs needs to go, okay, we start with this. Now come back and show me what you did and then ask for the next tranche and the next tranche. So I think that approach works really, really well. And I think the other thing is just, don't underestimate how many people in your business won't understand what AI is. So you do have to take them on a journey of not being a coder, but you know these tools you won't need to be a data scientist to use soon. They'll be all low code. You'll be able to drag and drop and build your own models. They'll just feel like tools you're using. They won't feel like algorithms. But I think you know what is it there to do? What is it like? What are the risks of it? What are the value pools we're going after? So that when you see something in your job that is mundane, that you think, oh, I actually know what AI could do there and question, is that something we should be applying AI to? Because a lot of the best innovations will come from the people who do that thing every day. It's not gonna be from the tech team or someone up at the top of the organization. Um, I will finish with leadership because I think too often you see this being led by tech teams and that's really important. But if you don't have joint ownership by someone in the business who's going to own the value outcome that you're trying to create with these technologies, you often see that more risk of failure. Yeah, and it's got to like, be not just about, well, I was just going to say one more thing. It's got to be about yeah, not just leading, leading in terms of getting up and saying, we're going to be an AI-driven organization. It's also what you're choosing to invest in. It's um, what you're measuring. So in the start, it might be how many prototypes are we building? You know, it, it might be how many solutions do we have deployed? How many people have we trained? You know, it's little measures like that. Ultimately, you want it to go to we're an outcome-focused organization. But yeah, I think I think leadership, you see a lot of leaders get up and talk about AI, but then they're not investing in anything that goes towards achieving that vision. And and to, a little an extension, extension to that, which is on that, on that leadership piece, um, uh, which is people and do you have the right people in the organization? And like when you're looking at organizations today and you're looking at kind of, yeah, the, the structure of those organizations and the people inside them, um, do you think it's a kind of apply the tools and the pieces to the, the, the people that are already in the organization? Do you think there needs to be some organizational change of like different stakeholders coming in and, and do you think there's different roles created? Have you got a sense of like how, um, companies and you kind of you're advising companies thinking about that in terms of kind of people structure in, in these different organizations yeah so i think i think if you think back to this is all about enablement of business strategy as you start to think about what this means what's the right capability to execute on that you need to think we traditionally think okay people capability now we're thinking about ai and technology capability and you need to think mm -hmm. the workforce strategy and the ai strategy almost needs to be in lockstep um yeah. As you start to 
build prototyping, it's from that day you should be starting to think about what does a job redesign look like once this tool's deployed and successful, right? You don't just put, and there's not enough organisations thinking about this right now. They'll think about it at the macro level for workforce strategy, but I don't see enough as you build a prototype reinvention of the work. So you, you, you essentially promise a productivity solution but never get to cash the benefit if you just put a great AI tool in today's way of working. So I think that's one thing to think about. I think the other thing is the skills and the attributes of the humans will change and evolve, of course. So if I think about, you know, contact centers is a really great example where um, at the moment humans take the very process-driven tactical things, but they also deal with the highly emotional customers who are irate and can't get through the process. In the future, AI will probably do most of that really straightforward stuff, right? So... Mm the attributes of who we hire to do those contact center roles that are human will be different. They'll need to be more willing to make judgment calls and empowered to do so. They'll need to be, you know, much more able to deal with emotional outbursts and, you know, connect with people. So the human job, maybe the number of them have changed, but also the attributes will change. And so I think this is why, you know, when you're coming up with any kind of strategy execution, you're thinking about what is best served by a human and what is best served by a machine. And how do we actually optimize that together as opposed to, yeah. So you don't want a situation where you just put in AI and then you've got a human who's really unhappy in their job either, because that's not sustainable productivity. Yeah. It's like kind of an almost these, there's the, there's the two roles and then there's the role that sits in the middle, which is how do you superpower that, superpower that human as well, which is yeah. maybe um, that when that you've got that irate customer, you're getting prompts throughout the conversation, which is like Correct. how to deal with that like, level of emotion. Like these are the things that this person is showing. And then these are the things you can say to help kind of not just placate, 100%. but kind of solve the situation. Amazing, right? And, that, and that's the thing. Like, yeah. I think it's a, it, there's a lot of nervousness around what does this mean? As a, you know, I've spent years putting in really complex AI solutions into, you know, um, operational centers and mm. you can see the team getting really nervous around what does this mean for mm. my job taking them on a journey from day one is so important letting them design how the tool will work what it looks like because it's ultimately got to be adopted by them um and they they come to see it as their like sidekick little superpower sidekick right that's kind of mm. notifying them you know we've done some great work with a, a transport agency in australia here where we're using cctv to predict congestion before it happens so then it's able to ping the operator and say, hey, I think that road's going to look pretty bad soon. So it's helping them be more proactive rather than waiting till the phone rings and goes, that road looks bad, you know? So I think being more proactive, being more you know, predictive, all of that stuff is something that we can work in real time with our AI assistants. Awesome. And if you are uh, taking what you've known and seen and trying to uh, advise there's no advice being given here. Advise someone beginning on their AI journey as an organization. Um, yeah. Is there any kind of foundational things, like three or four pillars that you would say, like, make sure before you jump into a use case, you think about these three or four pillars in terms of foundational pillars they need to consider um, to kind of set their AI initiatives up for success? Yep. Alignment to value pools on your strategic outcomes you're trying to drive as an enterprise or a business so so with this use case why are we doing it is it actually going to shift the dial and the thing we're trying to deliver strategically and is this the best use case to do that or is it just the coolest one 
So, you know, value alignment, value mm -hmm. pool analysis, that that is really, really important and, and underdone so often. Um, getting the business case and investment framework right so that you can incrementally deliver AI and scale it in a sustainable way. Um, a lot of organisations struggle with getting the right business case and investment approach. And it is fit for purpose. So, you know, if you're like, what is it? I'm like, well, it depends on your organisation and where you're at. So, you know, you'll have to talk to me offline for that. But um, yeah. the the other one would be operating model. So really, mm -hmm. before you unleash AI across your business, really be deliberate and intentional around how you're actually going to set yourself up with all of the risks and the governance, but making sure you can actually tangibly track those benefits linked to those value pools, because that's the way you keep scaling. If you can't demonstrate and it's chaos and there's no one tracking any of it in a portfolio sense, it gets very challenging very quickly. You get a lot of duplication, you get a lot of um, risks. So I think, you know, none of them are about the actual tech, right? Data or technology. Mm. It's like, yeah, value All the systems and processes, model, yeah. business case, yeah. Mm. The commercial, kind of the commercial piece, right? The commercial construct that allows you to then execute and choose vendor A, B or C, partner build, et cetera, unless you've got that kind of foundation of, of strategy that, make, that makes complete sense. Well, and I think, um, I mean, and it's really easy, particularly in financial services, I see it probably more in financial services than I do in other industries, is tell me what they're doing. Tell me another, like, what's that person over there doing? What are they using AI for? And I keep going, stop, like, yes, they've done that. That's a really good example. But is that the right value pool for you to go after? Is that your pain point? Like, what's the most wicked thing that you need to solve for? Or what could, you know, what would you love to be able to do, not in terms of AI, but outcome that would make you truly differentiated in the insurance space? Now let's talk about how AI can deliver that. Stop looking at what left or right are doing. Mm. So I think, yeah, that, that, that's that whole use case obsession thing with me. It's like, start with the value pool you're going after. AI, just sit down with some smart people and go, could AI help here? And they'll say yes or no pretty quick. They will. Uh, they'll be like, it's not there yet. Or, it's yeah, not there yet. or it's actually automation. It's not even AI. You know, like some of these conversations I have, you know, it's been great for even automation conversations because, mm -hmm. yeah, like right tool for the right purpose, right? Yeah. If there's a, sometimes when you've got a hammer, you can find lots of things to hit with it. Uh, it's uh, yeah, very easy to find, um, find something to solve. I just want to step, um, Kelly. <laughs> but Kelly, we just want to use some Gen AI. I know. I'm just like, but why? Why? Tell, <laughs> tell us how. Um, switching gears just a little bit, uh, and and this is something I know you've done a bunch of. Uh, you've got a bunch of knowledge in, which is why I'd love to dig a little bit. And it's into digital twins, and yeah. um, we've seen. I guess it's beyond Gen AI. Um, it's in this kind of, uh, we've seen Tesla doing a bunch of this um, kind of in terms of their, uh, I guess, I'm on topical from the insurance sector perspective, because obviously the, the, the vehicle has a digital twin, which they're using that for all the kind of budget rating factors, et cetera, um, for, yep. for um, kind of putting their own insurance together. Um, can you talk me through kind of what is it for those who kind of don't know uh, what digital, digital twin is and maybe kind of how it, do you think it's, emerging as a piece of technology and kind of how it's going to impact different um, uh, different companies, different use cases, different scenarios? Yeah, so digital twins is almost as hyped up as AI um, as, a, as a terminology. It, if you think about it, it's most simple. It's around creating a data or a digital copy of something physical. So now when people are starting to go, we'll build a digital 
um, digital twin of our business, I'm like, yeah, stretch, right? <laughs> like t digital, t sort of a stretch. Like think about yeah. it came out of its genesis in um, space technology, aviation, Formula One racing, essentially where you've got a lot of data about an environment. So I, I learned my digital twin background came from Formula One, so I can talk to that probably the easiest. Um, yep. Where you've got everything from the driver and how they're acting and data on that through to the car and, and millions of sensors across the car to the weather to the track characteristics and you're building an environment that you, you know, you're able to create a digital copy and simulate what might happen in that environment. So often people talk about digital twins. So then if we take that to where I've applied it most, which is in transport systems or, you know, um, urban planning for weather events and things like that. If you think about that, often people think, oh, it's just a, a twin of the data of that environment. That's okay. That is technically a digital twin. But I would say if you can digitize something, you should optimize something or pr use it to, to do more than just see what's going on, like situational awareness. So, so the first thing is once you've got a copy of that digital environment, so let's use Sydney, or Queensland, let's go Queensland because that's where I'm based. Massive weather events, floods, etc. We know everything about that environment. We can see the weather trends coming. We can actually now use that data historically to predict what might happen if we saw the levels rise by this level. Or we can see what, you know, so you can actually play out different scenarios. It's kind of like trial and error without the error. And so that's what a digital twin is. Where we see it going though, it's it's kind of really exciting, is, is more like a tool used for collaborative decision-making. So think about if I was building a digital twin of a city and I was a transport operator, which is the one I was using as an example before, I as the operator, you know, will be sitting next to a camera operator. He's got his applications that sit on top of the digital twin that optimize cameras. When he makes a change, they go back into the common operating view and update mm -hmm. everybody's. My app could optimize bus routes and it goes back into the common operating view. So we actually aren't just talking to each other about changes we're making and playing out scenarios. We're actually using one tool with all our apps sitting on top of it in the same environment to collaborate. So it's mostly used um, in operational environments where you've got lots of complexity and network management. Increasingly, we're seeing it, and, and the same data that you use to operate it could then be used for predictive maintenance because it's the same thing. You're trying to look at that from a how does the asset maintain, be maintained and erode mm. and things like that. For insurance, it's more around weather and where the risks are and, and how would you charge for premiums and then what does that mean for your customers. And so I think there's lots of different use cases, but um, it's predominantly the maturity is pretty good now. Um, some really great examples rolling out in Australia in the transport space, um, but mostly around physical environments. I think it, uh, the thing that jumps out in my mind is agriculture um, when thinking about insurance, yep. um, like kind of farms um, and the amount of inputs that are required around kind of farming and agriculture and crops and all those kind of things that kind of, and it just jumps in my mind of like a digital twin of a farm no. sounds like a, a pretty good thing. We built an amazing tool, it's called Dr. Sat, S-A-T, um, for the government here, which is actually an AI tool for farmers because farmers aren't gonna mm -hmm. go off build their own AI, but a farmer can look at their own land and look at its drought resilience over time using that technology. So yeah, it's a great example, cool. a very real one. Yeah, really cool, very, very cool. Um, Nelly, uh, uh, <laughs> Nelly. 
Don't to Kelly. Nelly, Nelly Cuddle, the, Kelly Nuttle. Nelly Cuddle. It's all good. Kelly Nuttle, one and one, two, two and one of the same. Um, I want to. Uh, <laughs> the doctor put me off. The doctor put me off. Um, I'd love I've to wrap up. Called, I've been, never been called Nelly Cuddle before. I have to say, <laughs> it's a fair. Well, there's there's a first time for everything. <laughs> I'm pleased I've been the first. Hopefully, I'm the last two. Um, I'd love to kind of wrap and understand if you could, for our listeners, maybe maybe two things. Firstly, to uh, kind of try and paint a vision of the future. We're having this conversation in 10 years' time. Uh, maybe kind of what is your maybe role? Like what, what are those conversations you're having um, in those boardrooms, do you think, in terms of changes and involvement? And kind of number one. And then maybe kind of any advice you've got to those folks of how, you, uh, how they can help get there in terms of bringing that vision to life. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly for insurance, I think everything is just highly personalised and we're already nearly there, right, with the data we're collecting. And, and so yep. I think um, we'll just see that trend continue um, and it won't feel like um, – I don't think we'll be as close to the data issues that we have today. Like my personal hope is that – you know, we give our data away to social media platforms every day and people can actually start to see that there's a value exchange. When you know more about me, you can deliver more value to me. A bit trickier in insurance because it could be adverse, but um, but I think um, that's a trend that we don't see going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I do think you do need to think about AI and the relationship with the customer because um, at the moment the customer has a relationship with insurers. How does that work if you start to see tools pop up as in the middle that, Mm -hmm. have that relationship and optimise because it can be a low-involvement product. Um, in terms of steps, I think just, again, please don't lose sight of the innovation and growth opportunities that this technology provides. And even if you do look left and right and don't see anyone else in insurance doing it, it won't be an insurer that disrupts you. It'll be a tech provider getting into insurance mm -hmm. or someone in a different adjacent ecosystem that wants to grow through your ecosystem due to their tech. So, you know, being really aware that this tech is here to stay. This is, you know, we are now at the point that AI is going to become the norm very quickly. It's already here in our day-to-day -day lives. We don't think about it. We don't think about getting to work with an algorithm. We just think Google Maps was very helpful. Or we don't think about mm -hmm. it for my food order with Uber Eats. We just use these tools. It's the same with the enterprise. So we all need to be thinking about in our day-to-day -day jobs, where could we be more efficient, more productive, get more joy out of our jobs, and how could AI help us do that? So I think, you know, being really, really clear on the value you want this technology and, and, and investing the time and understanding what it is. Kelly, that is a wonderful place uh, to wrap. Thank you so, so much for your time. I hope uh, everybody uh, who's been listening, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please do uh, watch the video version of the episode. If you head to our YouTube channel, uh, you'll see the link below. Uh, if you want to hear more from some industry leaders, um, who are pushing the boundaries in insurance, please do check out our other episodes. Uh, we will be kind of continuing this kind of mini series of generative AI and LLMs. And so uh, there is much more to come, both on the technical side, the organization side, and the underwriting side. And so thanks, everybody, for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.